0: in the area of managing your tongue and uh, looking at how to love and serve other people. The issue of motivation uh, always is before us. And I've shared with you in the past, uh, I believe, that I grew up in a a sound Bible-teaching church culture, and I'm thankful for that. What wasn't as sound in that culture was the motive for obedience to the Word. And often I found, particularly as a young man... Uh, an emphasis placed on the externals, which subtly conveyed to me and taught me that if I just do the right things, I will be a godly man. If I do the right things, I will be loved by God. If I do the right things, then I'm free to also pursue whatever other interests that I have, even if they compete somewhat with the priorities the Lord has for my life. And so I grew up confused is what I'm saying to you between wonderful teaching of the truth and the reality of how to live that truth out. And that may be your background or your experience. You might be coming from a different church background or or maybe even recently saved. But my desire this morning is to continue us as we think about living an authentic Christian life to look carefully at the truths that we find in God's word with regard to the power of sin it has over us and our understanding of the freedom from that power that the lord has given to us and when you begin to understand that the motives of the heart the understanding of the mind begin to free you to approach living the christian life with much greater joy much greater confidence much greater rest much greater peace in your heart i've entitled uh, my sermon this morning slavery or freedom the proclamations of Christian liberty. And people use that phrase in the church, all the Christian liberty, but they mean different things or are addressing different issues. And so what I want to do this morning is not only address that, but look at really the biblical principles that communicate to us clearly the freedom that we have in Christ and understand in that freedom We also are empowered to live an authentic Christian life, as I said, with much greater joy, much greater confidence, and much greater peace. When we talk about slavery, for us who are Americans, or North Americans at least, we can't help but have our minds go back to that period in our own nation's history where slavery was something that was established within the the norms in our society, and It led to great division, great conflict, and eventually a great war, didn't it, Uh, between the North and the South. And if you go back to that period of time, um, particularly on the date of January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, some of you have heard about this. You should have, uh, going through school in your U.S. history class or your government class, possibly, But I want to read to you what Abraham Lincoln publicly declared that day for us as a nation. January 1st, 1863. Here's what Lincoln proclaimed. All persons held as slaves within any state shall be then thenceforward and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize... And maintain freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they make for their actual freedom. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warned by the Constitution upon military necessity, I, the President, invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. That was a watershed moment. In our nation's history, where the highest government leader publicly proclaimed that slavery would no longer be tolerated as a nation. Now, we know because of the rights of states and so forth that there was an alignment between the northern states and the southern states that pretty much marked the battle lines of this watershed issue, led to a tragic war where so many lives were lost. But that war was necessary to fight in order to secure the actual freedom that the president proclaimed should be the right of every citizen of the United States. On that same day, January 1st, the Reverend Jonathan Gibbs, a graduate of Dartmouth College and Princeton Theological Seminary, spoke to an overjoyed audience at the First African Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia. So on that occasion, here's what this pastor said to a church that was comprised primarily of African-Americans. He said, Today, standing on the broad platform of the common brotherhood of men, we solemnly appeal to the God of justice, our common Father, to aid us to meet manfully the new duties, the new obligations that this memorable day will surely impose. The proclamation has gone forth, and God is saying to this nation by its legitimate constitute head, man must be free. Well, as you know, this act declared that the Civil War would be a war over slavery, a war which would seek to make a reality the promises of not only the Declaration of Independence but the Constitution of the United States. And though Lincoln's proclamation legally declared the slaves free, it would be generations until the reality of freedom would be experienced by all former slaves and their families. The history books and the headlines illustrate how difficult it was for former slaves to live in light of future legal identity. And so this morning, with that in mind, as maybe a human illustration or a practical example of the need to proclaim the rights and realities of any member of this country to enjoy the full freedoms that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence declared, the Scriptures provide for us clear proclamations about our liberty from the power of sin in the domain of darkness. And we too must come to not only fight a fight to make that a reality in our own lives, but to also understand the work that is necessary in the power of God to think this way, to believe this way, and to behave this way, and to delight and to enjoy in these wonderful freedoms that have been entrusted to us and so just as that African slave, imprisoned in dreadful and dark circumstances, was proclaimed free, we as believers have also been proclaimed free. And just as those former slaves had to struggle to experience these realities of their new independence, so too must the believer wrestle error to live out the realities of their new spiritual status. And so this survey of Scripture provides for us three spiritual emancipation proclamations— And by examining these statements, we'll be able to appreciate the great theme of our freedom, I trust, from a biblical perspective, and help guide you to enjoy uh, and delight in these wonderful freedoms that are ours. So, Emancipation Proclamation number one. The believer is proclaimed free from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And this morning we're going to be doing a little Bible study. We're going to be going between the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, looking at a few other texts, and you'll see that uh, the Scriptures are consistent in speaking to this issue of our freedom, our spiritual freedom, in light of the work of Christ. Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans, Therefore there is now no, what does your Bible say? Condemnation, no judgment. No penalty for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This is a bold proclamation that we have been set free from the penalty of sin. Now you know that. That may have been the point of introduction to the kingdom where you heard that if you do not repent of your sins, you were damned and destined to an eternity separated from God, suffering beyond comprehension what was the right and appropriate and legal consequence of your sinful, rebellious condition. And God worked in your heart to regenerate you and to humble you, bring conviction, grant you faith that led you then to respond in what? Repentance. So this may not be a new truth for you, but it's one that we need to celebrate and to live our lives in light of every single day. We have been set free from the penalty of, of sin, Go back with me a few chapters to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 4. <laughs> Jumping into verse 23, he says, Not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, speaking of Christ, but for our sake also. I'm sorry, speaking of Abraham earlier in the text. It was not just credited to him, verse 24, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification, and therefore having been justified by faith, chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Look down with or yes, look down with me then to verses 18 and 19. Paul continues, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's an amazing statement that Paul makes here. Earlier in chapter 4, he's referring to the life of faith demonstrated by Abraham that was credited to him. And because of that, he was determined to be righteous in the eyes of God. But Paul says it wasn't just for Abraham, it was for us. And the same principle is true. And it's interesting, writing here, he's noting also that there could have been the assumption that, oh, Abraham, because he was Jewish, he was the one who received the blessings and benefit of God's work a man's behalf, But Paul's saying here, it's not just the Jews, it's the Gentiles. And he's writing this epistle, helping us understand that we all, under the new covenant work of Jesus Christ that satisfies the law, no longer face condemnation. He says in verse 18 of chapter 5, alluding to the fact that because Adam sinned, sin passed on to all mankind. You were born with what's termed imputed sin. Okay? You were born in a condemned condition you had no hope from the moment of your birth and so he says because of one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men verse 18 and here it is this is our hope isn't it even so through one act of righteousness what's he speaking of the work of jesus christ on the cross there resulted justification of life to all men So he's making this contrast in comparison to the condemned man and now the one who is set free from the penalty of condemnation. Please don't ever take for granted this amazing proclamation of freedom that is ours. Paul uses a term, it's a theological term repeatedly, of justification and just to make it real simple for you, let's break down that word. If you just want to talk about what just means, it means to be righteous. You're either righteous or you're not. And in light of the law of God, we know that we stand condemned. Okay? We are not righteous. And that's exactly the point he's making here in verses 18 and following. So there is a standard of righteousness. And meeting that standard means that you are just. You satisfy that standard. The word justice means to do righteousness. And this is the active work of demonstrating one who behaves in a way that's consistent with a standard of righteousness. Now, as I hear that, you're looking at your own life and saying, I don't always behave in a way that's consistent with this truth. And we're going to speak about that in a moment, about how God is going to perfect us and grow us in our present reality to experience what is the ultimate reality that we in God's eyes have been declared just. The term that's used here, so we talk about just means to be righteous, justice means to do righteousness. Justification is just this idea to be declared righteous. This is a legal term. A judgment is being rendered. And because of the work of Christ applied on our behalf, God determines and declares, he proclaims that we are no longer under the penalty of sin. Ultimately, it's not just the Apostle Paul and what he articulates, it's God himself that issues an emancipation proclamation on our behalf that we are no longer under the penalty of sin. We refer to just the human example of the most powerful leader in a nation making that public statement. Here we have God, the king of all the universe, on our behalf. Yes, providing the means that would pay for our sin, and also declaring us, then, just. God does that. He is the one who issues this proclamation Come with me for a moment to Galatians, because Paul has a need in his ministry to address this issue where there was confusion, particularly in the church in Jerusalem. And this account is given an explanation throughout the book of Galatians. Let me set it up for you. Paul, in his ministry among the Gentiles, had baptized Gentile converts. And Returning back to Jerusalem, there was a debate referred to as the Jerusalem Council. We find this in Acts chapter 15. And on this occasion, there is discussion as to whether or not those who have come to faith who are Gentiles need to be circumcised. And circumcision was a sign of the law. It was a sign of the covenant. And it was a requirement among those who were Jewish believers. And this is in the early days of the church where they're trying to make that transition between their newfound freedom from the penalty of sin, and their former way of trying to keep the law. And so some suggested that those who were Gentile converts needed to demonstrate the authenticity of their faith by being circumcised and adhering to that practice. Even uh, Peter got caught up in that, even though he knew the difference. And in that encounter there in Jerusalem, the elders met. And in this Jerusalem council, it was discussed and declared, that it was no longer necessary to be circumcised. But because of the new freedom that we have, both Jew and Gentile, we certainly would not impose that on any of these new believers. So look at the book of Galatians with me as Paul begins to explain some of this, and it will give you a context for the need to work through this principle in practice so that we don't find ourselves falling back under this idea of the penalty of sin has to be met through this measure. Galatians chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 15. Paul writes, We are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by what? The works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But... If while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be, he says. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might, and I love this, live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That is so important, that last statement there. When we want to go back and to think that somehow we can accomplish righteousness and justice enough to satisfy God, we are cheating the work of Christ. What we're saying is, he died needlessly. So this is a dangerous error for us to fall into because it robs Christ of the glory that he alone deserves. And so we need to understand the practical application of this truth. Yes, we've been proclaimed free from the penalty of sin, but it's a reality. And that reality has to affect our thinking so that we don't fall into a form of of legalism in our Christian practice. Now Paul continues on, stay with me in the book of Galatians, let's go to chapter 3. He says in verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. There's our condemnation. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith, on the contrary. He who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ took the penalty of sin, the curse on our behalf. And when we try to earn or merit more of God's love or to earn or merit somehow justifying ourselves in God's eyes apart from the full and complete work of Christ, we are stealing from him the glory that he rightly deserves. And we're not living in light of this critical truth. Now look down just a few more verses. Verse 23, Paul says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law Being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become what? Our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. This is the singular and shared identity now of all men, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their position or status in life is, that when they come to Christ and allow his perfect, his perfect work to satisfy the law of God, we are one. We are one in our identity before God himself. And so it was necessary for Paul here where this debate was raging to bring clarity, to say, no, 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 no. None of us live under slavery to the law any longer. But he does use an important term in verse 24. He says the law has become what? A tutor. What is a tutor? It's a guide. It's a teacher. It's an instructor. And so he's not saying the law has no value. The law has great value because it reveals to us in practical and human terms what holiness looks like. And so it instructs us still to what an authentic Christian life looks like. But do you understand what he's getting at? He's getting at the motive behind that. If you're set free in Christ, then it's the power of Christ and his work in me. Paul could say for me to live as Christ. Why? I'd sure like to say that. And say that in the fullness of its sense, it's not only the application of Christ's complete work on my behalf, but it's a love and devotion in response to Christ that perfects my desires to glorify him. And therefore, I choose to do what is holy and consistent with his nature. Do you see how being set free from the penalty of the law allows us to change our motivation in recognizing the standard of the law for our own lives. And so in this, on this occasion, Paul is addressing this temptation towards legalism to try to add to something that Christ has done to earn or merit God's favor. John Calvin, in addressing this issue, said this, laying aside all consideration of works, we should, when justification is being discussed, embrace God's mercy alone. We should turn our attention from ourselves and look only to Christ. For there the question is not how we may become righteous, but how, being unrighteous and unworthy, we may be reckoned or declared righteous. If consciences wish to attain any certainty in this matter, they ought to give no place to the law. So what is legalism? Legalism, defined this way, is attempting to earn God's favor or basing one's spiritual identity on the observance of external religious codes. And this can be, in reality, a works-based approach not only to redemption but to sanctification. Is there human responsibility? Yes. But that responsibility comes when a heart's been transformed And the affections of the heart are more in line with the glory and honor of Christ Jesus. And it informs your choices then to do what honors him. We have been declared free from the penalty of sin. So our motive in doing good things, Christian things, righteous things, can't be to somehow earn or merit more of God's favor or earn or merit God's proclamation that we are just. That has been accomplished. Alistair Begg wrote a book a number of years ago entitled Pathway to Freedom, How God's Law Guides Our Lives. And he quotes the Puritan, Samuel Bolton. Listen to what Bolton says. The law sends us to the gospel, that we may be justified, and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty in being justified. What's he saying? The law is an instructor to us. When we encounter the law as one who's unredeemed, it tells us we are unworthy. We are incapable of satisfying God's standard, and we are under judgment, right? So the law serves a purpose to the unredeemed. That's why when we preach the gospel, we need to preach the standard of God's holiness to people. It's not just a generic, you're a sinner. You are a sinner because it's impossible for you to live a life of righteousness. It's impossible but there is one who did live a righteous life on your behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, and here's what he did for you. And because of that, and you put your faith in him and confess that you have no ability to meet God's holy standard, you are a sinner. If you confess that with your lips and proclaim Jesus Christ, he will forgive you of your sins, and you will be justified. And so the law guides us to the gospel right? And the gospel reality in our lives sends us back to the law, as Bolton said, to inquire what is our duty then in being justified. If we are declared free from the penalty of sin, if this is the standard of holiness, then allow us to use it, to instruct us, to understand where we fall short, that we might continue to aspire to seek to be like Christ. Martin Luther Addressing this issue, particularly in the book of Galatians, said this, there are three ways in which the law may be abused. First, by self-righteous hypocrites who fancy that they can be justified by the law. Secondly, by those who claim that Christian liberty exempts a Christian from the observance of the law. And thirdly, the law is abused by those who do not understand that the law is meant to drive us to Christ. And when the law is properly used, its value cannot be too highly appraised. It will take me to Christ. Every time. Takes me to him in the gospel. And I go back and then I see the character of Christ through the law. That helps me understand how I can imitate him and honor him. I don't know where you're at today. You may be caught up in the same tension that they were facing there in Jerusalem. Where you know the truth that Christ died for you. It's only his work that can satisfy you. But you're still tempted to try to earn or merit more of God's love more of God's favor. And I want to just encourage you that that is not possible. It's not possible. Get off that treadmill of a Christian life. Stop and embrace the truth that you have been proclaimed free from the penalty of sin. And with that in mind, we can look at the second Emancipation Proclamation that we find in Scripture. And it's this, the believer is not only proclaimed free from the penalty of sin, he's proclaimed free from the obligation to sin. And this is where we might find most of us. Feeling as though we have no option but to sin. We're just slaves to the flesh. And here we're speaking not as much of the great doctrine of justification, but the great doctrine of sanctification. I want to define that for you. Sanctification is the divine act, of making the believer actually holy, and bringing the person's moral condition into conformity with that legal status established in justification. So justification and sanctification together are our realities. Let me try and make this really practical for you, okay? We know that we have been made holy, and it's a positional reality. We talk about positional sanctification. Because God, outside of time, looks at the work of Christ and applies it to us. He sees us as sanctified. But we who live in the continuum of time experience what's called progressive sanctification with the promise that one day we will be glorified. Amen? And we'll get a new body, and it will no longer contend with the new man. Okay? And we'll be made whole, and we will be free from the realities of sin that surround us in our body And in our world. And so, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that understanding we are not obligated to sin, we have been set free to make a choice. Our volition has been returned to us because we've been justified. That means you and I, every time we sin, it is the direct result of a choice, conscious or unconscious. And when you frame sanctification in terms of choices, you need to think about what is the process that leads me to sin. And this is where James helps us so well. If you want to turn with me to the book of James, a text I'm sure you've looked at many times. But what James does for us is he helps us understand that sequence of choice-making. He says, "Well, let me back up. We'll start in verse 12. "Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. In these last two verses, James is saying there is a sequencing of choices related to sin. See, if we've been set free from the obligation to sin, okay, then we no longer have to fulfill this every single time we face the choice. And he says the process of this, the sequence begins with the temptation. Is a temptation to sin? The answer is no. It's something that comes to you, if you will, externally, to excite the senses, the desires, and the delights. And at that point, a choice is made to entertain that temptation or not. That's the first point of decision-making. We can say no then. We can. It's a choice that has been entrusted to us with the return of our volition. Second of all, when you entertain the temptation and it takes residence or stirs up the desires, James says the lust, right? Now there's a longing for that and a consideration for how to actually accomplish that. And that is a second occasion for a choice to be made. At the point that the, the desires, the lust have been stirred up. You still have not yet acted in sin. You can repent at that point. There's a choice to be made. But once temptation has been yielded to and lust has been conceived in your heart, a desire then to satisfy that temptation, a choice is made, a third choice, and that is to act out in sin. And Paul tells us the pattern of that, unrepented of, leads to death, spiritual death. Why would James line this up for us this way if we had no choice, if we were just victims to this entire process? And now we're speaking about the reality for you and me on a daily basis. Where does the fight for holiness come to play in our own lives? The temptations you're most easily drawn to may be temptations different than me, Things that I long for sinfully, idolatrously in my own heart that they appeal to may be different than the things that are in your own heart, though their root is self-love and, and sin and self-gratification. But the point is, James saying there is a sequence of choice-making, and we have been set free from the obligation to sin. Go back with me now to uh, Romans chapter 6, I want you to see this. Verses 17 through 22 is where we'll jump in. It says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now... Here's your choice. You have the freedom to make this choice. Present your members as though they were slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Here's what the proclamation made possible for us the freedom from the obligation to sin made it possible for us to choose not to sin. You did not possess the freedom to not sin prior to your redemption. So think about spiritual liberty this way, spiritual freedoms, in terms of the freedom of a choice that's been restored to you, a choice you did not have under slavery to sin. Does that make sense to you? Because many Christians still live and think as though they are slaves to sin. I have no option. I am obligated to sin. This is a futile fight on my part. And you're not thinking biblically. When you think that way, it's not a futile fight. I don't care how many times you fail, you're in the fight. And the promise has been made that you will have the victory. And God is going to perfect you and complete you. So if you start out with the despair and a hopelessness as though it's inevitable, I have no option, this is just my destiny, you don't understand the proclamation made clearly in Scripture that you have a choice. You've been set free from the law of sin. It's an amazing freedom entrusted to us to pursue a holy life which we were not able to pursue before. Well, just jot these texts down for the sake of time. We don't have to go there. But 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17, or Philippians 1, verses 6 through 11 might encourage you. But I will take you back to John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. In verse 31, we read, "'So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, "'If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, "'and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free.' "'They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. "'How is it that you say you will become free?' Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That's our promise, brothers and sisters. We've been set free from the obligation to sin. This is no longer the uninterrupted pattern of our life. And so this wonderful freedom that is ours allows us then to understand what our responsibility is in the body of Christ towards one another. See, when I see you, you might be struggling, but I see you with eyes of hope through the promise that you are not a slave to sin. You may be discouraged, downcast, defeated, and my ministry is to come alongside you and to build you up and to encourage you and to remind you, okay, the fight is a fight that Christ has fought for you, first of all, and two, he will grant you victory, okay? Don't despair, even in those defeating kinds of sin that want to make you believe the lie that you have no choice but to sin. It's a lie. You've been set free, okay? So my ministry to you is one of encouragement. It may be one of exhortation you stepped off that path, and you begin to pursue sin in your own life. And I need to come along out of love and say to you, listen, you know better, okay? And I'm going to help you, right? And I'm going to guide you into a path of repentance and to obedience. And together, we're going to pull together to help you have victory in this area. And there's a lot of practical ways that we can remove temptations from friends by helping them. If they have a need, a personal need that might tempt them to misuse money, even steal money, then we'll meet that practical need financially. There's a lot of ways we can help each other. So that body life becomes about realizing this promise that we're no longer under the obligation to sin. Well, I have just a few moments, but let me touch on this third Proclamation. Emancipation proclam- proclamation number three is this. The believer is proclaimed free from the motivation to sin. What is the motivation in our choices to sin? It's self-love, simply put. It's an all-consuming love to gratify self, to elevate self, to seek self as its ultimate good and best. This is the motivation that unless we're freed from we will have no hope to overcome sin so let's go back to the book of Romans join me in Romans chapter 13 here Paul continuing this amazing discourse throughout his entire letter about how Christ has fulfilled the law and set us free, it says in verse 8, Oh, nothing to anyone except to what? Love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has, oh, fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this, saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. See, we've been set free from trying to keep a standard of a law that ultimately is impossible. But what Paul's saying is there's been a change. There's been a, a transformation that's occurring where your affections and your motives to sin are changing from what only before was a, a, a being a slave to love of self. You now have the ability to understand what love is because it was demonstrated to you perfectly in the person of Christ who gave up his life for you. The ultimate picture of self-denial for someone else's benefit. You know that. You claim that. You hold tightly to that. And when you understand that standard of love and you understand that you've been set free from the penalty and the obligation to sin, you recognize God's doing a new work. He's going to give you a simple expression of this, of course, will be found in the Old Testament with the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Let me frame it this way. If you love your neighbor, are you going to steal from them? Are you going to commit adultery with their spouse? Are you going to lie to them? Are you going to kill them? Or even covet what they have to the extent that you don't want them to have it, you want to possess it so that you can rise above them in status or whatever? No. See, if you truly love your neighbor, which you've been given the ability to do through the power of God and the freedom in Christ, you're not even going to worry about the details of the law. You're going to live in a loving fashion towards others. And as you do that, you're going to demonstrate how Christ and his work through you fulfills the law. This is important to understand because there's another error that we encounter when we think about legalism or contending with the law, and it's called antinomianism. It's a big mouth word of a mouthful of a word, antinomianism. It's a theological term. Let me define it for you. The word comes from the Greek, meaning anti, antinomianism, and nomos, the law, and refers to the doctrine that it is not necessary for Christians to preach and or obey the moral law of the Old Testament. This idea is, I've been set free. I've been saved. My penalty has been paid, right? Now I can do whatever I want to do. Well, sure you can, if what you desire to do is to glorify God and to love your neighbor. But if you think you've been set free from any obligation or consequences of the law so that you can just go pursue your lustful, sinful, self-loving pursuits, then you probably aren't even saved, if that's how you think. That's a misunderstanding of what you've been saved for. And what we're dealing with here is the great doctrine of love demonstrated in the character of God and his son. Listen to Martin Luther. He said, "'God has given us poor consciences, "'which lie captive under the accusation and curse of the law, "'the comfort of spiritual liberty. "'But the devil interprets this as liberty of the flesh "'and creates nothing but confusion and disorder. "'As a result, his dupes want to be free in everything, "'lords of all government and rulers of everybody.'" And in this way, the devil sanctimoniously disguises himself under the semblance of the gospel and Christian liberty, and yet overthrows both the gospel and Christian liberty. When Christ was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Instead of pointing to any one of them as the greatest of the others, he just said it's this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What was Christ most interested in? issue of the heart, the motivation of the heart. And we see this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in in chapters 5 and 6, where he says, you know, the Pharisees want to point to all the things that they don't do. But you know what? You can still try to observe the law and keep all the commandments and still have a wretched, unloving heart. If your aim in even doing the good things is for self-glory and self-honor. So it's not so much about the behavior as it is about the heart. And praise God, we've been proclaimed free from a motivation of self-love. And we've been given the ability to love others just as God has loved us. Well, there's a lot more that we could say. I just want to end with this idea. Some people, when they talk about Christian liberty, have this wrong understanding. They think, I can do anything I want as long as I don't cause someone else to stumble. Here's a a more biblical way to think. I must do everything I can to assist others and to encourage others. See the shift in focus of who is being satisfied? It's either me or it's God. It's either me or it's my neighbor. And so this wonderful teaching about freedom for us, yes, we're free from the penalty and the obligation, and the motivation of law. We were once, Paul says, slaves to sin. Now we are slaves to righteousness. And what's the practical takeaway as we close this morning? Is if you live in light of these wonderful emancipation proclamations, it changes your orientation. It changes your perspective. It actually gives you hope. But it also reframes what our responsibility is in the body of Christ towards one another to move towards one another, to aid one another in our care and counsel. But it also aids us to deal honestly when we're faced with temptation and choice to sin, what's really going on in the heart. And it's at that point we get to claim the wonderful promises that God, God is the one who satisfies us. His holiness is that which we're called to emulate and to fulfill And people can see, then, Christ in us when we live this kind of freedom. And I hope that thinking about these things, while they weren't exhausted, that maybe this survey of these wonderful truths aids you to persevere in the battle, but to do it with gladness of heart and great, great promise. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for these clear declarations, proclamations of the freedoms that you have granted to us, your children. Lord, we can't fathom really the fullness of these truths. But as we grow and mature and we see them applied in our own hearts and lives, we pray that it would be the case, the evidence would be that we are righteous and we live righteous lives and people see that we are more in line with your holy standard. We long for this, not for our own self-glory, not for earning or meriting more of your affection for us. You've lavished that on us. But that way might demonstrate you so that particularly those who are lost and those who are confused might be aided to come to Christ. So guide us in this endeavor, we pray, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen.